All right, you can turn over in your worship folder to our sermon text in Genesis chapter 25. If you have been around for the last uh, month or so, well, even the last year, we've just finished up a series on church leadership, uh, looking at the different passages throughout the New Testament that talk about uh, the qualifications and purposes of God's gift of leaders He's given to His church. Um, but that was a break from all of last year. We've been going back and forth between the books of Genesis and Romans to see how they speak to one another. Because one of the things that we believe about the Bible is that the whole thing, from beginning to end, Old Testament, New Testament, it is all one big story that is ultimately the good news of Jesus Christ. How He was sent to redeem a people for His own and ultimately to redeem the whole world. So now that we get to, we finish the leadership series, then we are, have a moment to jump back into Genesis, looking at uh, chapter 25. And uh, as I hope we'll see, this is actually a fitting transition from leadership back into this passage. And just before I read it, which I'll read in, in just a second, let me just say a word about why, how we've broken this thing up. Um, if you'll see the very first line in your worship folder in verse 19 that the Genesis is structured uh, what's often called the Toledot formula. Um, that's just a Hebrew word that means generation. So the whole book is structured according to how God has worked in different generations, how He has met with them, He has made promises to them, and how He has formed a people through um, this one particular family and sons and sons and sons after them. And when you think about it, this is really a unique thing about Christianity and that the whole thing is not just based on God's relationship with one person, but that he has entered into people's lives again and again and again and again through multiple generations, proving himself faithful and forming a people to be his own. So when we get here to chapter 25, we have finished looking at Abraham, um, all the ups and downs of his life. And then we are transitioning to Abraham's son, Isaac. And so these are the generations of Isaac. And you'll find interesting as we read this, which is actually something that is good news, is going to continue on with Abraham. So rather than say these are the generations of Isaac, the writer is going to make a point to say that he is Abraham's son. And this is a clue to us that this is a continuation of God's work of blessing to his people that he started with Abraham. So the promises that he made to Abraham are now being carried on through. And you also find interesting that Isaac almost gets no airtime here. It goes straight to his son Jacob. And that is just because in the story of God's people, it is through Jacob that God will actually, and through his sons, will become the, the 12 tribes of Israel through which he will form this people from just a family into a big people um, coming on. So Jacob's an important point in this story. So all that being said, uh, let's read this passage together. Genesis 25, 19 and 34. This is God's word. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. 
and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. He said, and Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us before we get started. Dear Father, we ask as we come before you to study your word that you have given us, um, that what is about to be said would be true and would be faithful to you. But more than that, despite who is saying it and what is said, we ask that your spirit would work, that you would communicate truth to our hearts. You would open up our fears. You would open up the dark places that we don't want to even recognize to ourselves are there so that we can be confronted by your mercy and your grace. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a story that is looking forward. As I said, it was, this is a story of good news that is about Abraham and God's blessing. And this is going to serve as an introduction um, to several chapters coming, the events that are about to happen. Um, so it's anticipating something um, of which what we're, what we're going to study this morning is just an introduction. And what it's anticipating is this. I want us to assume, um, like we are the original readers of this story, um, we really want God's blessing. Like this is being a part of this people, uh, it means something special. That God has made special promises uh, to work through a particular people and to give his blessing. And this blessing is his favor his plan to redeem all things, not just this family, but to redeem all families uh, so that all the families of the earth shall be blessed and that this people will experience God's blessing for themselves and through them they will be significant and important and go out. So as it mentions Abraham, we really want this blessing. But as we read this, um, as we are readers of this story, particularly earlier ones, it quickly, like good stories do, brings us to a point of crisis. So what starts as good news for a people, it quickly goes south, and particularly through this relationship with these brothers. And these two brothers, Esau and Jacob, this is the family through which this blessing would be carried. But as we see from their earliest days that they are embroiled in conflict... And we look at their characters individually, and neither one of them are all that great. And so we are kind of left at this point of crisis with this question that is God's people 
actually going to be able to carry out God's blessing, to receive it, and then to pass it out to those around them. Because it doesn't look like that's going to happen. Like, it looks like the character of these people is doing nothing but undermining what God has for them to do. Um, and I really think that this is a question that is not just relevant to them, but I think this is a question that is relevant to every generation um, and every group of people that has come since. Um, and this it's really hit home to Lauren and I. We were in seminary. We started in 2013 at Covenant Seminary. And we got there, and we were all fired up to go to learn, um, to be discipled, to participate in God's work. And we showed up to seminary, and first of all, things were going really well. Like We showed up all stressed out in a big moving truck after driving it through construction in St. Louis. And then all these people just came out, and they helped us unload our stuff. They are really kind, really made us feel welcome. Things were going great with the future leaders of God's church, um, at least for a little while. And drama started to come up real quick. And I remember it first had to do with the dogs and that there were certain people that would refuse to walk their dogs on a leash and to clean up after them in the playground area. And so there were lots of emails circulating about keeping your dogs under control and it seemed like the more emails that went out, actually the less motivated these certain individuals were to look after their dogs. And I distinctly remember several times comments being made, and these are the future leaders of God's church. They can't even keep their dog in order. Like, what are they even doing here? And then it was kids' toys after that, left on the playground and not cleaned up. Um, then it was competition after that. And then there were not insignificant moral failures after that. Um, and then, even as we, Lauren and I, got in far enough, if you were to look in at the Clegg household during this time, in the middle of the stress we were under, then you would have found one hopelessly addicted a performance addict who was afraid of being insignificant and had to work very hard to make himself something. You had somebody else who was afraid of losing her family to the stresses of ministry, and particularly losing her husband um, to pursuing other things other than the family. And there were kids involved, little kids, and the stress that they bring. And there, all of this led to several polite conversations that probably could be heard through the wall um, with our neighbors. Um, and it really hit us very strongly, because like, we looked around at the types of people that God called um, to lead his church. It was very unimpressive if you looked at it um, from a worldly standpoint. And I wonder if you guys have ever felt the same way too, even if you have sat in, sat in your chairs in this church, other church, whatever, and looked around either from the leadership or even maybe now you're thinking of the person who's sitting right next to you, and you might have the same thought. Like, how is God's blessing actually going to be carried out through this people with the state that they are in? How is anybody going to look in on this community and see um, something that is alive, a peace that is alive, um, character that is pure, um, 
And maybe it's not even the people around you. Maybe you have had the benefit of the Lord showing the same thing to you. That maybe it's you. Maybe you know the things that are in your heart. Um, That when you just are honest with yourself and you know what happens between Sundays, that it just leaves you with this question. That how is my life in any way characteristic of such that God's blessing is going to be known through me? I think this is a very familiar um, sensation for all of us to have. And good news for us, um, we have this spelled out for us on the pages of the Bible. This is a very familiar circumstance even back from the beginning. All the way back even before them to Cain and Abel um, and the very beginning of when human beings came. So what then? Does that mean that um, human behavior is going to undermine God's promise of blessing? And we're going to go through this in two ways. First... We're going to look at how, especially through these two characters, how human beings actually undermine um, the work of blessing that God has called us to. And then after that, we are going to look at, um, catch this, I think it'll be long, but uh, it'll make sense, how God's mercy undermines humans' undermining of His blessing. Okay? So that's where we're going to go. Uh, let's jump in and first look at Esau and Jacob and see if we, um, how the text describes them as undermining God's blessing. Let's first look at Esau. Esau is actually the focal point of this narrative, as you see that um, even though Jacob is the one that the line continues through, Esau is the first one mentioned and he's the last one mentioned. He gets the last word. And one thing you have to understand about Esau in that culture is that because he was the oldest, even though he was a twin, he came out first, that he was given this thing called a birthright. And that means in that culture, he was um, entitled to special privileges in the household as being the oldest male. He would get a double portion of the inheritance that would come from his father later. And he would get extra esteem and responsibility and that it would be up to him to take care of the bulk of the family um, as it would go forward through other generations. So Esau being born first um, is given this birthright that is something then um, was, should have been a very honorable um, thing to have. But what does he do with it? If we, let's, if we look at his character first, he's kind of a manly man. He's a uh, the writer tells us that he's born hairy, like that was important. Um, he likes to hunt. Um, his father prefers him because of the, the meat that he brings home from the hunt. So he's kind of pitched as this stereotypical kind of a brute, like um, this manly man. But his character, the writer shows us something very interesting about his character as we read through what happens. So he is out hunting. He comes back. He's exhausted, and he comes to Jacob, and he sees some red stew. And the words that are used here are very particular. When was translated here, let me eat some of that red stew, the word eat is like gulp down in an animalistic kind of sense. Like, let me devour, and then this red stuff. Like, it's just red. Like, he sees it red and assumes that this is um, a meaty dish. Um, But he's not even really paying a lot of attention to what he's doing. He's just hungry. He's acting on impulse. He sees something with his eyes that looks good. And he says, 
give me some of that red stuff. And Jacob, he sees his moment of opportunity and he says, okay, I'll give it to you if you sell me your birthright. Um, And Esau says, I'm about to die. Of what use is my birthright if I'm dead? And let's remember what this birthright had to do with, is that it was not just to be in God's family, an extra set of blessings that he would lose if he would die. But his birthright was connected to God's faithfulness of how he was going to bless this people beyond even Esau to the ends of the earth, to all families, to all places. Uh, So what Esau is doing because of his impulse, because of his just desire to have what is right in front of him to fill a need, he says, now God's purposes are no longer value to me if I am dead. So therefore, I don't need it. Sure, you can have it. I really don't care. If you were um, an ancient Near Eastern reader of this, you would have been shocked at the level of um, at Esau's behavior and how much he just didn't care about this birthright. And especially knowing more to the story, we kind of get a picture of who Esau is. That he is a guy that having God's privileges, his blessing, is valuable only if it doesn't bring suffering to Esau. So to Esau... God's story was only about propping up Esau's story and making him successful. It was not the other way around. And the tragedy of Esau, what he missed, was that he was important, but he was important to the extent of God's plan for the whole earth. And as he didn't see that, he could not see the value of what God's blessing was when this moment of suffering came. And I think, if we're honest, that's probably a familiar feeling with us as well. That the blessings that God's promises through um, Christ, through his people, through his church, uh, the blessings of faith, that they are valuable to the extent that they do something for us. But as soon as they don't do anything for us, then it's no longer valuable anymore. We would just assume, please ourselves and do whatever we want to do. Okay? So this is one option characterized by Esau. Look on the other side, look at Jacob. Jacob is very different. He's characterized as a quiet man, uh, which means that he was, um, he was kind of a civilized, refined guy who was loved by his mother, who was not loved by his father, who came out second. His name means the heel grasper. And so he was named after what his whole life would be characterized by of feeling small and inferior. Even though he was still a member of God's chosen people, his entire life was characterized by a feeling of restlessness and desperation, of always needing more, of not measuring up. And what does he do? Out of his sense of wound and out of his sense of desperation, he reacts against that in some very underhanded ways. He deceives Esau. He gets in a temporal sense what he is after, that this promised birthright, but he just causes a mess in the family. Esau is very mad at him um, because of this, obviously. Jacob will end up having to flee. He puts his whole family in danger. 
his wives, his children. He's left to be on the run. Um, and his desperation is not helped. Like, it is actually gets worse. And so this is, this is a picture, I think, of what a lot of us experience every day. Is on, we want what we want on one hand. But particularly, like, Jacob is one of my favorite characters in the Bible. Because he's all calm on the outside. He's put together. But on the inside is just a storm of desire, of wanting more, of feeling small, and then reacting out of that. And just like think about you in your own life. Like think about when stress reaches to the point that you can't hold that facade there anymore and you just lose it. You start doing crazy things. Uh, it starts coming out. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about, there's a, Tom Waits is one of my favorite singers. He has an old line that says, People do crazy things when they're wounded. Everybody's a bit insane. Um, And I I think that's very characteristic of God people. It's a bunch of people who want for themselves and who are wounded and who are afraid and handle it badly. This is what being a part of the people of God looks like on a service. But that's not the end of the story. And that there's something else at work here that is very important of how God actually undermines these actions of these guys in a way that is very particular. Um, And in order to understand this, we're going to have to zoom out a little bit far. The passage I read earlier from Romans chapter 9, as it is reflecting back on this, reflecting back on these guys and reflecting back on uh, what God was up to, it was this. It does not say that the success of God's people was tied to how well... Um, these guys handled themselves, particularly in Jacob's sense. But what it says is that God moved in to Jacob's life, uh, to somebody whose life was spinning out of control because of his own wounds and his own fears. And he made him a significant part of his people for what reason? To display the purposes of the one who would call him. In other words, God's mercy. God's work of bringing good news, it was not a work of his people handling the task as they should. But the people that God chose was the avenue through which that God would actually show what his work was all about. And that was to bring mercy to people who needed it and had no other way. Just think about this. When you think about the people of God, you th- let's start just think about the people around you. You can even think about the people that you're frustrated with. What is it like? How do you think of them? How do you think of what that does um, to the success of God's people? Is it discouraging? Uh, is certainly frustrating. But does it feel like because of other people, because of how people have used the Bible, because of conflict... Um, because of anything else, that God's work is somehow dampened and that his blessing will not come. The good news about this is that God's effectiveness is tied to not people's work, but to God's mercy. And that is a challenge to us, even as we interact with other people, that even that is the avenue which, through which God's mercy can be seen. And think about yourself as well. 
Again, put, when just evaluate your life. Think about the things that you're afraid of. Think about the things, the habits that you have that are, uh, you just have no control over. How do you view yourself? Does that in itself make you feel small? Like God's work in your life is not effective? Or is the challenge we have here that even there, even in your failures, even in your reactiveness, um, even in your weakness, that maybe that is the avenue where God actually wants to communicate his good news. That you are the object of God's mercy by being a part of his people. How do we know that's the case? Ultimately, you know, this is a story about Jacob, and we see God's providential work through Jacob's life um, and his interaction with his people. But if we zoom out a little bit um, and we look at where Jacob was headed, I think that we get uh, something very interesting. His whole life, like I said, was lived on the run, and he was led by God to the point where God, at the height of Jacob's despair in chapter 32, that God actually showed up. And he showed up and he basically said to Jacob in the middle of his despair over himself, bring it on. Like, we are going after you and we are going to duke this thing out. And Jacob is famous for wrestling with God and coming away wounded. But what does that do? So God in his mercy, in actually using Jacob's weaknesses, using that despair in his heart... He like stoked it to the point that he had nothing else where he could go until he could see that he had a bigger issue and that it was with God himself. That God had not given him what he thought that he needed. God had not made him important in the way that he thought he should be important. God had not protected him when he thought he should have had protection. But he used that to draw him in so that he would be confronted with God, so that God could pronounce on him the blessing that he created that could only come from God himself, not from Jacob. No work that he could do. And God actually blesses Jacob in that moment at the end of himself. And what is the blessing for us? We've been talking about this blessing a lot, and that it is because of God's inclusion of people like Jacob that is a great comfort to us of the types of people that God works in his people. But Jacob is particular because he was one of the fathers through a people through which God would ultimately provide blessing through his son, Jesus Christ. And the blessing that Christ has to offer, and this is the proof of this whole thing, that Christianity as we gather together, the thing that is in the middle of it is the cross. That Jesus came as a man, he took everything on himself, and so that he actually could give the blessing that we all crave. That restlessness, that despair that is there. So you, as you go before God and you think about yourself and you think about, even as a member of God's people, what you know is in there, the things that you know are afraid of, that you can look at the cross and the blessing that Christ gives and know that you have been brought forward not because of you, but because God has moved to show you mercy. Your sin is not a barrier to your place in God's people. It is not a barrier to God's work in your life. 
It also means that being brought near to God in that inclusion is that the plan of redemption of how he is working to bless all nations is mysteriously now tied up with Christ. That through Christ's work of redemption, that even the circumstances that God will lead you through that are confusing and difficult, even the pain, even the showing you of your own sin, ultimately, these are undermining even your attempts to get somewhere because God is showing you mercy. He is using you as a reflection of what it is like to need His mercy so that you actually have something to share. You have good news to share. And here's the challenge I want to leave you with. So we've seen both. You see these these examples of how um, just the behavior of God's people undermines um, the blessing that God has called His people to of proclaiming the good news to the nations, even our character. But we've also seen, as it is all about God's mercy in the lives of sinners, that God's mercy actually undermines our undermining, and our purposes actually serve to work for His purposes in the very end. But here's the challenge. We could take this and we could walk away and say, it doesn't, so therefore it does not matter what I do. Um, you know, God's success is going to go forward. I'm attached to Him. Therefore, I can continue like Jacob and not deal with things. I can just keep running. That's one option. I want you to see the other option. That there is an invitation here actually to take those holes in your heart like Jacob and bring them to God. So that you can hear the blessing that can only come from Him. What God wants out of you is your heart. He wants your heart so that you will commune with Him, so you can know His grace, and so you can be overwhelmed by His embrace, and you can be changed by that. It is the person that has been changed by God's mercy who knows where it comes from that actually is in the best position to be able to communicate that grace to others. And this is exactly why I think this is a good segue from our um, series on leadership. Because you say, what does that mean? What does it be a leader in any way? That could be an officer, that could be a small group leader, that could be in your home. Leadership in a gospel sense is when somebody takes hold of the grace of God that has been given to them and they know what it is like to receive mercy. And then they are free to share that with other people who are just like them. And if that is the case, especially demonstrated on the cross of God's sending His Son for us, His mercy is done. It cannot fail. And so the hope of God's people, what He is doing, and what we have to look forward to outside of us and in us, is just as secure. And that is a lot to hope for. Let me pray for us. Dear Father, thank you for your gift of Jesus and thank you for your mercy. And we ask that you would, um, as stubborn as we are, as fearful as we are, as reactive as we are, that you would break through that and you would help us to see you. That we would feel the warmth of your embrace. We would see and know the mercy that you um, spilled out on us through your Son and that our souls actually could be at rest. 
We put all this in your hands and ask that you would work through your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen.